Let's dive right in. Uh, Matthew 15, 1 to 20. We're series right now in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and learning a lot about the, the life of Christ right now. And we're on our way. The trajectory of all of this is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're new-ish to the Bible, everything in the early parts of the Gospel accounts, uh, it's a great interpretive motif or principle to employ when you're reading the Bible, is everything Old and New Testament is about the cross and the empty tomb. It is the climax of God's story he's telling in history We're a part of, but he's the hero. So if you have that in mind, the early parts of these gospel narratives are really, whether Christ is declaring it outright or demonstrating it uh, physically, like through healings and so forth, it's all about the cross. And so in this portion of the narrative, we're looking ahead to it. And if we look at a a passage or a book like Philippians 2 or the whole book of Philippians or some book in the Bible, on the flip side of the cross, it's going to be looking back to the cross and talking about what that means for us. And it's going to call us to it and how to live in light of that, what God is doing in the church and around the world through that. that. But that is the way God is making his kingdom. So when the gospel of the kingdom phrase comes up in the Bible here in Matthew or elsewhere, just have in mind to simplify, it's a bit of an abstract phrase, but to simplify that in your mind, just think salvation or God being here to rescue us from our enemies, namely sin, death, Satan, and ourselves. We're going to talk about that self enemy thing a lot today in terms of uh, dirty hearts, hard hearts, how that plays out here in Matthew 15. But uh, have all that in mind. The context today is, like we've seen repeatedly throughout this book so far, is Jesus having a tension-filled exchange with religious people. So good religious people. This is the big antagonist of the gospel accounts. It's not necessarily Satan, though obviously he is the main antagonist, you could say, in the Bible, and sin and death with him. But these good religious people are, are individuals who are listening to Jesus, partially receiving what he has to say, but being greatly offended at the same time because what they're hearing him say is, you're not good enough. All your moral effort is not enough to enter the kingdom of God. And for a religious person, that's the most offensive thing you can say. Uh, and, and for all of us, it's offensive. The gospel has to have that rock of offense, like the Bible says elsewhere, type element to it, or it is no gospel at all. So whenever you hear the gospel proclaimed, think, is there an element of offense to this? There's an element of stumbling over it to this that I'm hearing here. If not, it's probably not a gospel, or it's a semi-gospel, a gospel about you and how great you are. Or, you know, good you are, maybe not great, but how God wants you to be a good person that's going to be great and just achieve a lot in life. It's not the gospel. But the gospel that the Bible lays out is all about Jesus rescuing you and me, doing everything, which, again, comes, along, comes right alongside that more subtle a doctrine about us and sin that says we're in way too deep to save ourselves. So that's going to come out today as well. And, and, and I love these exchanges with these individuals because they tell us a ton about the Old Testament too. The Pharisees were masters of the Old Testament. A lot of them had it memorized, even completely. The scribes as well. And they, uh, and Jesus is basically saying, he says at some points, have you read this? You know, which is, again, offensive thing for someone who's spent their life mastering these documents, these texts to hear. But he says, you haven't read them right. You haven't, you haven't seen me in them. You've seen yourselves. You haven't seen the, the, the Savior that all these texts are pointing to. You've seen me. You've seen you and law and all of that. So learn a lot about the Old Testament, law, sin, gospel, and, and everything uh, around that as well. So that's the task for today. Uh, Matthew 15, 1 to 20 is the passage. We'll read this uh, in full to begin. Verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he, not, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. All right. So let's just summarize what's going on here. Pretty complex passage. We'll go back and look at a lot of the details here in a few minutes. But basically what's happening is these Pharisees or religious Jewish leaders of the day are accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders, which was you have to wash your hands before you eat. So not a biblical tradition or law, but an extra-biblical one, a Jewish one that came alongside the scriptures for the Jews in the first century. So Jesus responds with a question, which is always, you know, at that point, whenever you ask a question to Jesus and he responds with a question, you know, you know you're in it deep at that point. Just, you know, it's <laughs> never really a good sign. But anyway, he has some hard things to say. He responds by accusing the Pharisees of hypocritically breaking biblical law, actual Old Testament biblical law, by giving their money to God at the expense of their parents. This is called Corbin. It was a Jewish law where it was a loophole, essentially, for people uh, to give their money to God, even if their parents were suffering. So Jesus is saying, this is not even a biblical law. It's a tradition you have, but when you engage in it, you're breaking one of these commandments, which is to honor your father and mother. Basically, at the core of that is the commandment to love. You're not loving. You're reviling your father and mother for the sake of your man-made tradition. So he flips it on his head and exposes their hypocrisy and their unlovingness. Even though it's veiled, it's kind of this veiled, I'm, I'm zealous for God type, you know, spirituality, at the core of that actually is selfishness and, and unloving uh, stuff. So he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 to support himself scripturally, basically saying this has happened before in history. Several hundred years before this, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about the people of Israel saying, you know, you're doing this and it's, it's fulfilled in a sense or recapitulated again in the first century, but happening again with these, with these Jews before Christ. Then he calls the crowds, this is the most important part, then he cr- calls the crowds together and uses this exchange to make a greater teaching point about this whole matter, saying, true uncleanliness comes out of the heart, not outside of a person. If you get nothing else today, understand that. He uses this as a context to say, true filth, true defilement is a heart matter, not a dirt on the hands outside of you type matter. You might be able to see the effects of defilement in the world, and maybe on our bodies, but true defilement and uncleanliness comes out of the heart. 
And so he uses this exchange to make, even though it's a tradition of elders type thing initially, he uses that to spin off that and make a point, a commentary on the Bible and what the Old Testament has to say about these matters. Because he does quote the scriptures in the Old Testament about physical cleanliness as well, uncleanliness as well. And it really drives us back to himself and to the gospel by quoting it and commenting on it in a certain way, which is what we'll talk about now. So then the question is, what Old Testament laws and traditions are being referenced here? And there's a lot, a lot of layers of this passage today. It's pretty complex, and I think it's helpful to go through just the three main ways the law is being used, just to see that there are three different things. If you blend it together too much, it can get too muddied and confused. And confused. So, three things. The first thing is, like I mentioned before, just quite simply, he's separating law from tradition. So washing hands is not a biblical law. It's not in the Bible. But honoring father and mother is. So at face value, God cares about honoring parents and love more than washing hands. Isn't that just great? On face value, I just love that, that that's our God. He cares about parents being cared for more than washing hands before a meal. I just think that's great. But anyway, we'll see how that progresses here throughout the, the rest of the sermon. But it's a hint at what's to come. Heart over hands, basically, is what Jesus is saying. So that's the first thing, separating law from tradition. That's the first paragraph. Then he takes it a step further in and exposes the sin in the Pharisees' hearts and really all who read this passage, hearts, uh, through the law. And part of the purpose of the law in the Bible, remember, is to expose sin. Paul says in Romans 5 that when, when sin increases, grace gets bigger. And part of what the law did, like the Ten Commandments in the Bible, is to be a mirror and to show us how filthy our faces were. And so the law does that. Paul says, I was coveting before the law said, don't covet. But when, it, when the law said in Romans 7, when it really said, don't covet, I realized all the more how I couldn't do it. How at the core of my heart was this desire to have what others want, to envy, to be jealous, to not be content in God. And so it actually makes sin bigger and shows us our need for Jesus, for God, for Redeemer outside of ourselves, outside of law. Because if for law keepers, essentially we're saying by keeping the law, I can do it. I can keep enough law that makes God happy with me, that turns his head, and that gets me into the kingdom of God. But law actually was not intended to do that. It was supposed to, and for many it did do this, but for many it didn't. It was supposed to make the problem bigger, to make God and his grace all the more coveted and and wanted and needed and, and asked for. So the Pharisees then in this passage had hard hearts like us. They were not simply honoring their parents. They weren't caring for them. They were more interested in giving money to spiritual endeavors and doing this publicly. We know this, by the way, too. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't fast and give and pray publicly like the Pharisees do so that they might be seen by others. It's a huge thing to put our finger on and ask, first of all, do we do that? But just know that for the Pharisees. We can read that into this passage and just assume that this Corbin idea, this giving to God versus parents, giving more money, more of our stuff, uh, to, to God, to the temple, to the sacrificial system and the, the cultic system that was going on there in the first century and spans back into the Old Testament. It was a public thing. So people might see, wow, look at all this, this money and this sacrifice that these Pharisees are making. Aren't they very spiritual and great? So they probably weren't obvious jerks about it, super obviously arrogant. But if we're honest, at the core of our heart, there's always that, am I doing this with a completely pure motive? It might be like 80% pure, but this is just this 20%... Am I really doing this to be seen, or is this okay that God alone knows that I'm doing this? So but that's a whole other sermon. That was a few, that was months ago, actually. But I think we can read that for context. We can read that into here and say that the, their spiritual traditions are puffing them up while they're, they're ironically breaking actual biblical law at the same time. 
the core of that law being love for God and love for people. So for now, though, just know that as we read in this passage, the Pharisees are being labeled blind, hypocrites, sinners, and lawbreakers. Part of the ministry of Christ is to do this, to, to use the law to expose sin and just to label it as that. So again, people would see their need for him and understand that his mission is to come against those things. We can read ourselves into this. We are hypocrites. We're sinners. We're blind. We break the law. He's doing this in love. It's a great passage in a different gospel. I think it's Mark where it says, in one of these tension-filled exchanges with the religious people, it says, Jesus looked on them and loved them. And then he said something extremely hard to them that offended them. You know, it's like, I love, that, I love that characteristic of Christ where he loves us too much to not say the hard things and to say, you're not okay, you're not able, you're not good. He says very forthrightly earlier in Matthew, you are evil. So we can, we can take that teaching and say, do we believe that or not? And if we do, we're much more likely to run to Christ than, than otherwise. So that's, that's part of the role of this whole exchange with these Pharisees is to use the law to expose sin. And in these Pharisees' case, they're breaking this law of honoring father and mother and the greater law of just being selfish and unloving and arrogant. Their own gods, essentially. Their desire for public praise, which is basically a desire to be God among people. All right, so that's the second thing, which is exposing sin through law. I'll come back to a little bit more of that uh, to end when we talk about what this is really saying about us. Those are the last two things we're going to talk about today after this third matter in a moment. But we're just going to talk about what is this saying about us, human beings before God, and what is this saying about Jesus? Because we really understand the nature of his mission better uh, when we approach it from that matter, which is a great interpretational paradigm, by the way, to approach the Bible almost all the time. What do we learn about ourselves as sinners before God, and what do we learn about God the rescuer? It's, there's almost always, at least in greater sections of Scripture, those two are always at the, at the forefront. All right, third thing is, though, uh, Jesus is changing some of the law as well. Jesus is changing Old Testament biblical law here, fulfilling it. Another word for that would just be to fulfill it and complete it. All the Old Testament law in some way, Matthew 5.17 says, the Old Testament is not being abolished in Christ, but it is being fulfilled. The idea there is like a goal or a finish line. So all the Old Testament was like a race up to the finish line of Christ, but now that, now that the race is over, here. So the Old Testament has found its head. It doesn't continue in a lot of ways, other than to continue its purpose and its ministry of pointing us again and again and again as we read it ahead in the story to Christ, even though now we're on this side of Christ. But what Jesus is doing here, this is why he continues. He draws the crowds together. So there's this initial exchange about the tradition of the elders and the washing of hands and the not loving of the parents, but he uses this as an opportunity to draw the crowds and make a greater teaching point about himself and the nature of sin and the Old Testament. Basically what he does is he makes a deep, theologically profound statement about Old Testament cleanliness laws and the nature of internal sin. What I want to do to begin is look at uh, one just short verse from Mark 7.19. About uh, This is Mark's, uh, another one of the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Same story as Matthew 15, but he includes this one line that Matthew alludes to, but does not state explicitly, but this is helpful for us to understand what's, what, what is Jesus doing here when he says sin only comes from the heart, not the outside. In Mark 7, 19, he says, same context, different gospel, thus he declared all foods clean. Or because of his teaching here in Matthew 15, Jesus declares 
all foods clean. By saying that sin only comes from the inside. This is why he's talking about what goes inside, goes into your stomach and eventually out of you. How can that make you unclean? Jesus is saying it only comes from the heart, what comes out of your mouth, not what goes. So he's talking about food here, but Mark makes it explicit. He is declaring and changing things here. Because in the Old Testament, there were unclean foods. Foods that Israel were not to eat. God said, these are clean foods, these are unclean foods. These are ceremonial or sacrificial foods. There are three categories. But especially the first two are important for you to know. Eat these, touch these, don't touch these, and don't eat, don't eat these. So aside from the tradition of the elders, so this is a category shift here. Make sure, otherwise we'll be too confused. So set aside the whole washing of hands thing. That's not in the Bible. But aside from that, moving on to the latter part of this passage, there are certain laws in the Old Testament that did require Israel to be externally and ceremonially clean, including the rejection of certain foods. So Israel was unclean if they ate certain foods, if they, to go on here and list some other things, some of the major things from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament are this. If women had babies, they were unclean for a while because they bled, so bleeding was an unclean thing. And if they had other bodily discharges as well, if they got sick, especially with leprosy, they were unclean until they were cleansed and they had to go through rituals to be clean. But there were all kinds of things like this. And not just this, but to be unclean was to be contagious with your uncleanness as well. So if you were unclean uh, with one, through one of these things on the left here, uh, bumping shoulders literally with another Israelite would have made them instantly unclean as well. Or sitting on a couch that they sat on earlier in the day would have made you unclean as well. And by unclean, meaning ceremonially unclean, so unfit to enter the temple of God's presence and worship him. Basically saying you can't get as near to God as you otherwise would if these things happen to you or someone around you that you accidentally touch. There are whole systems and codes set up. This is just a synopsis. You can read the book of Leviticus for a greater in-depth study on uncleanliness codes and cleanliness codes and laws uh, that God commanded Israel to keep. Uh, in the Old Testament, that Jesus is now saying no longer apply. So that's what I want you to see with this first graph here is all the things on the left. I have Leviticus 13 here with leprosy uh, mentioned here. The, the, the key here is at the bottom, by the way. He is unclean, the last line. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. In other words, i.e., away from God and away from the people of God. So uncleanness was this physical thing that, that, was, that kept you away in the spiritual sense. It reminded you of that anyway from God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's contagiousness. But in the New Testament, Jesus is declaring all these things on the left clean, or at least no longer obstacles to worship. When he says it's only stuffing something inside of you that makes you unclean, he's basically saying those codes and those laws are, they've met their end in me. They find that they found their fulfillment in me, and I'm changing things now. So Mark 7:19, Jesus' teachings today in Matthew 15, uh, it, convey that, and not just food, the foods thing is mentioned, but with it, what's conveyed with that is this whole matter of external cleanliness and laws have come to an end. So this means then we have to ask the question, why separate foods at all? What is God doing? These are very strange laws, right? God would command Israel to keep uh, for generations and generations and generations until the coming of the Christ. What's symbolized here? Why deem people with bodily discharges or women who had kids? which is obviously a wonderful thing, right? But they're unclean for uh, a, a number of days after that until they're ceremonially clean with the help of a, of a priest. Why skin diseases? What's, why certain foods? I eat pork. Why am I kept away from God's presence uh, for, for all those reasons? 
there are two layers to this. I want to answer this today uh, on a simple level. I'll unpack one of these a little bit more next time we're in Matthew. The first is the more specific with foods for clarity. The second is the more broad, just talking about clean and unclean in general, which is more in focus, I think, today because Jesus talks a little bit more in focus, even though he mentions food. So we'll start specific with foods and go broad uh, in answering this on two, on two layers. So the first reason that God uh, commanded these types of things in the Old Testament, with food laws in particular, is that, again, eating unclean foods made you unclean, but the bigger rationale here is certain foods for God symbolized different types of people in the Old Testament as well. So as Israel was separating foods, it symbolically portrayed the spiritual separation that God was making between his people and the other people of the earth that were yet unsaved. One clear place you see this is Leviticus 20. God says to Israel, You shall therefore separate clean animals from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And here's the key. And have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So as God is saying, I'm separating you from a dead and dying world and saving you, he's also saying separate foods and eat a certain amount of foods. And he's, he's making a pretty clear connection here that as you're doing that, it's a physical demonstration of how set apart I've really made you, how clean I've really made you, how holy I've made you. I am holy. And I'm making you holy by grace. Not because you're great people, but I'm saving you by grace by my choice because I love you. And, and eating of certain foods, clean and avoiding unclean, is just a physical reminder, demonstration of, of that reality. Which, by the way, is just a huge way God... If you don't know that about God and how God moves in the Bible, you have to know that. He is just into physical things demonstrating spiritual realities. It's the way he moves. And we are too because we're created in his image to share in that. Communion does this every week. Jesus says, take bread and wine. It's basically a picture for you of my broken body and shed blood. It's meant to point you to a spiritual reality. This does not save you eating this. The shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ does. But this reminds you and it points you to that. In a similar way, certain foods in the Old Testament reminded them something about God's saving work in in the Old Testament. So, again, non-Jews at times, a lot of you guys know this, were pictures of evil and enemies and sin in the Old Testament. So again, God is, there's pictures, a picture idea there that God is demonstrating and he's, he's separating his people from them and foods portray that uh, to, to make that greater theological point on a regular basis as they would have seen this happen all, all the time. There are other similar laws for Israel in the Old Testament like separating uh, fabrics. They were, they were not to intermingle certain kinds of fabrics. They were not to intermingle certain types of seed And they were not to intermingle their cattle with cattle from outside the camp. And they themselves were not to intermarry with with non-Jews. So as you read these codes and these laws in the Old Testament, and see this pattern of of separating happening over and over again, and it's the same point. Basically what God is saying is trying to demonstrate, I have separated you from the world. I have separated you from evil. I have separated you from the lost. I have claimed you for myself. I am your husband. I'm your father. I'm your savior. I, the Lord, have done this. God's very clear in the Old Testament. You have not. I have done this. And so the proper response in worship is just sheer thanksgiving and, and worship and gratefulness, uh, not, not good works, which I'll come to again here in, in a few minutes. So this is the first thing, the separation of foods and what that symbolizes. This is actually really key for uh, next time we're in Matthew. Uh, we're going to break from Matthew here for a few weeks. But next time we're in Matthew, 
Jesus interacts with a Gentile woman, which is not a coincidence. He's just got done declaring all foods clean, basically symbolically saying, non-Jews are welcome to me now. And then in his next passage, he interacts with a Gentile woman. So not coincidental. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next time we're in Matthew. But So that's the particular answer to why does God command all these strange laws in the first place. That's the more specific, the food laws. The more broad answer just simply has to do with symbolizing spiritual uncleanliness and cleanliness. In other words, Israel's uncleanliness and cleanliness laws were just a constant reminder of humanity's pervasive spiritual filth and the contagiousness of sin, how impossible it was to get away from it. If you read these codes and these laws in the Old Testament, one of your takeaways should be, it's impossible for people not to be unclean. If you just read some of these things that are very common, very day-to-day, very commonplace, you'd think, everyone's unclean like almost all the time. Or if you're not, it's like maybe for a day if you're lucky, you know, or for a week. Wow, that was amazing. I was clean for a week. Then you like bump into someone's shoulder. Oh, you know, it's like, it's like wiping the, uh, you know, the thing off the workplaces or factories have the days without accidents thing. You know, it's like got that going, oh, they're back to zero. You know, but anyway, it's basically that what it kept happening. It's impossible. Bleeding, leprosy, burying your dead even, which is a necessity, you would just become unclean. So again, I mentioned before, having kids and just people being sick, Unclean foods would have certainly found their way into the camp at times. All these things demonstrated the actual inner uncleanliness of the physically unclean. Does that make sense? Again, it goes back to how God uses the physical to demonstrate the spiritual all over the place. If we don't understand this paradigm of which how God works in the world, we just will simply not understand this. This is how God moves. So it would have been this constant reminder. And even in the Old Testament, God wove in spiritual things to this as well. So he says, separate uh, fabrics, don't eat pork. If, if you bleed, if you touch a dead carcass of anything, animal or human being, you're unclean. But then woven into that is, if you commit adultery or incest, unclean. So more obvious moral things that made you unclean. So in that sense, then, it, it, it would have been right there in, in the passages, right in the books of the Bible, there would have been this you know, reminder, this light would have gone off for, oh, it's not just these outside of us things, but these are things inside of me that makes me unclean as well. So when God's saying, circumcise your heart, soften your heart, it would have made a lot of sense lining up with these things in the Bible too. And and they're probably, for the attuned, really attuned to the scriptures Israelite, they would have been looking ahead for a much greater form of cleansing than what the cultic system provided in the Old Testament too. So again, fast forward to the New Testament by, by declaring all foods clean and ending these greater laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness in the Old Testament altogether, Jesus is changing the law. Those laws no longer apply anymore in the New Testament. And we've seen this demonstrated too, by the way, I mentioned leprosy before. This is one instance. Jesus is saying this right here. Defilement only comes from your heart. He's, he's declaring all foods clean with his words. But he's also demonstrating that things are different here too by lepers coming to him and touching him and becoming clean. Remember in the Old Testament, if you were leprous, you were, you were sent way outside the camp. You couldn't get close to God. But now in the New Testament, lepers are coming into the city and touching Jesus, who, by the way, is called the New Temple in the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? So you have a complete reversal of things happening. Jesus is this new cleanser. He's this new flipper on the header of all the laws, the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. He is the one who is coming to cleanse the heart and, and making lepers now. And he's de- so he's demonstrating that there's a greater problem in leprosy as well at the same time. 
I'm cleansing lepers. Now they're touching. See, if, if the Old Testament law is held up, Jesus should become unclean when a leper touched him. But the, the reverse happened. The leper became clean. So Jesus is really fulfilling and flipping around and changing things by establishing a new testament, a new covenant that's built around him and uh, what he's about to do for us on the cross, which is really where he'll cleanse all lepers, us, like us, lepers like us on the cross uh, from our uh, sin leprosy. It's also similar, uh, if this helps you, it helps me, so I'm guessing for many of you it will help you too. It's similar with the sacrificial system. So as a lot of you are aware, in the Old Testament, God also had a sacrificial system where animals would die for people over and over and over again, in many and various ways. And God said, I will forgive your sins. I will atone for them through the death of this goat or this ram or these doves. And then some. But in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, look at what it says. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, or I'm sorry, 10.4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That has to inform your understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament. See, God, God gave laws, but they were only placeholders for a time. They never really took away the sins of human beings. That was only Jesus Christ. They were placeholders for a time. They looked ahead. They foreshadowed Jesus, but they never really functioned in that manner. So I think we can use this paradigm when you read Matthew 15 on a, on a similar level. We can say, as Jesus says, don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. So basically what Jesus is saying, to use Hebrews 10 language on the bottom here, it's impossible for certain foods or dead bodies or sick people to make you unclean. See the similarities there? It's basically what he's saying. It's impossible for stuff outside of you. Even though for a while, for a time, God said that was the case, to demonstrate a spiritual reality, it never really was. And now we know that. Now Christ is making that very clear. Things outside of you are not your biggest problem. That's one of the biggest teaching points of this whole thing. Your greatest threat in the world is not a dead body across the room that you might accidentally trip over. Your greatest threat is you. Your greatest problem is you. Wasn't it G.K. Chesterton who said that when asked what the biggest problem of the world is? He said, I am. You know, I always love that. Great answer, I am. You know, a guy who gets the Bible well. You're your big, I'm my biggest problem. You're your biggest problem. It's not, even though you have problems outside of you, for sure. It's not to downplay those. You can see the effects of sin out here. But if we take Jesus seriously, the biggest problem is right here in your heart. Some of you have maybe never heard that before. Or you just flat out don't believe that. But the, the call of the scriptures here is to ask us, do you believe this? The problem of the Bible will always inform your understanding of the remedy. If you believe that's the problem, this is why Jesus is doing this. Out of love, he's saying this because he knows people's greatest need is him. If you really understand this inner problem, it's going to point you to him uh, all, all the more. And so what does this say about ourselves then? How does this eventually point us here inside to what the problem is in our heart? And I think that to hear that sin is inside, I mean, there's two ways you can take this. Uh, we'll talk about the positive spin on this here in a minute. But I think that the initial spin on this is, this is incredibly frightening, if you think about it. When Jesus says sin comes from inside you, your heart, I'm not just talking physiologically like it's a little bit of a, you know, like a tracking device you can pull out of your arm or something. You know, it's actually in your DNA. Like it's in, it's in your heart. It's a part of you. It's been, you've been born into this world with it. That's a very frightening teaching. Your sin, my sin, is way out of control. And it's impossible to put a cap on it. I mean, look at this verse, verse 19, 
uh, from today's passage has a great list, uh, I think. And 20, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Just put a period right there for a second. (laughs) Man, I wish you would have started with that one, you know. Evil thoughts. Who hasn't done that? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You can add when he talked before about dishonoring your father and mother, which I love the Bible does that. Romans 1, I think, is another example in the New Testament of right alongside, you know, fornication and murder, there's disobeying your mom and dad. And then he goes back to some of those, you know, bigger sins. Like, oh, wish he wouldn't have stuck that one in there. But, you know, because who isn't, the point is, they're all, they're all wickedness before God. They're all sin. They're all rebellion. Yes, they're different shapes and sizes, but they're, the ground's level before the cross. And God never says, the Bible never insinuates, ever, that those, just those who disobey their mom and dad and are pretty good in other counts, you know, are better off than those who commit adultery. It's never said. Ever. The opposite is said. Paul says in Galatians 3 that if you want to keep the law, you better be perfect. That's the standard. And no one is. So look at this list. This is what this is the mere, the mere uh, side of the law. This is what it's saying to us is, who has not done these things? You have done these things. This is actually nightmares. The, the picture that came to mind for me this week was, it's like the sensation there, there are bugs crawling under your skin and you can't get them out, and you're scratching your skin off. It's basically like that. Or it's akin to the realization that adultery is a heart condition, not just an external sin. Like Jesus himself says back in Matthew 5, when he says, you think that you've, you've been, pre- been pretty well off in terms of the don't commit adultery commandment because you've never physically committed adultery. Moses said don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust after another person with your heart, because if you do, You've committed adultery with that person in your own heart. So he raises the bar. He makes sin worse than what people immediately perceived it as in that context. So if that's the case then, again, it's going from out here. Adultery is a little bit more out here. It's physical. It's a decision I make versus adultery is actually inside us. And I can't control the lustful thoughts I I have for other people. So you actually, if that's true, you can go from, depending on how much you've committed adultery or not committed adultery in your life, you can go from thinking... I've never once committed adultery to getting that teaching to I've committed adultery 100,000 times in my life and I cannot stop. Right? It's like, no matter where you are over here, let's just say someone's never committed a physical adultery ever. They can go instantly from that to I've committed adultery before God. I've had sex with someone outside the marriage context hundreds of thousands of times. If it's about lust in the heart, toast right? That's what this is about. Basically, when he says, sin is not outside you, it's inside you, it's akin to this. It's going from here to here and being condemned underneath it. So that we will not run to ourselves, we will not run to the commandment, don't commit adultery, we will not run to the idols of this world, we will not try to wash our hands enough before we eat to clean ourselves up before God. We will go to him over and over and over and over again. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're in a hopeless situation. Whoever reviles father and mother as well, note what Jesus said earlier, must surely die. And it's that law as well. The wages of sin is death. The ultimate manifestation of our rebellion against God is that we die. We see it every day. We hear about it every day. All of us will die. It's just a reminder that we have rebelled. We've made ourselves God. We have sinned against the creator of the universe. But so this is, the, this is all the bad news. This is like the, by the way, this is not your obvious, you know, 
Christmas sermon, uh, but it's not very obviously Adventy. but it actually kind of is, you know, because this is the kind of stuff Jesus was born into. When Jesus was born into the world, he was born into a feeding trough for animals and laid in it. That's your Savior. See, that's, that's what tell, it tells you about his mission. He was not born in a high circumstance. Even though he was God, he became low and humble and rejected like one of us. It, it, you should make a beeline with that image to the cross and say, that's the ultimate feeding trough. The cross is like the ultimate feeding trough. That's where he's laid on a cross and nailed to it to die for you. So it's born into this. This is, this is how it's Adventy. This is how it's Christmassy. And this is the dark backdrop against which Jesus is the light of the world. And that's where we move to. The Bible always provides, when it, when it paints this dark of a backdrop, Old and New Testament, always against the foreground of it is this solution, is this Savior, is this promise that the book doesn't end here. The promises don't end. The fulfillment is still coming from an Old Testament perspective. And now in Christ, here he is. He's the hope. So what does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us about his mission. When he exposes things like this, he's always intentional. He's basically saying, this is what I'm here to fix. I'm not, I don't care about washing hands. I care about washing your heart. It's impossible to be defiled with dirty hands. Isn't that, isn't that, that's like the good news side of it, right? It's freeing, praise God. Super condemning and frightening, but there's this other side of it that's freeing because it makes you stop trying to wash yourself up which is the whole point. You know, trying to wash your soul and do enough good before God is like trying to pluck a virus out of your body with tweezers. It won't happen. You know, but again, if you're religious, you'll want to wash your hands before God. If you're Christian and biblical, you'll say, I don't have dirty hands, I have, I have cancer. I cannot save myself. You see the huge difference there? A lot of people, even in the name of Jesus Christ, under the label Christian, are over here. Thinking they're Christians, but they're doing this their whole life. Just washing their hands. Living visibly Christian lives, but their heart is a zillion miles from God. And the whole time God's saying, I'm over here. I'm here to cleanse this, not to wash your fingernails off. I mean, that's not, that's not what I came for. Look at the Bible, even. The problem is, Lack of love. The problem is rebellion against God. The problem is pervasive uncleanliness in your heart. You cannot get that out of your soul. That's what I'm here to, to address. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you once were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And the Bible uses uh, washing language and cleansing language like it does right here in these two verses. The authors are not pulling those words out of thin air. They're, they're steeped in Old Testament imagery. Basically what they're saying in the subtext of that is Jesus is the ultimate water basin. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. The one who sheds his blood to wash you. He's the ultimate one that makes you from the camp of the unclean to bringing you close to the temple of his presence and actually much, much closer than Israel could ever get even in their cleanest days in the Old Testament. Even their cleanest days they couldn't really get to God's presence. 
Because even those were shadows. Even those were pictures. Even those were physical demonstrations of a greater reality that Christ would bring into the world one day and does. That's why it's called the temple in the New Testament. Jesus brings them actually into God's presence so we can actually touch him and be with him and dine with him and sit with him. That's salvation. That's the gospel. That's what he makes possible for us. So a a final warning here. I want to take you back to the Pharisees for one second. Remember who are called blind. I think they're probably called blind for a number of reasons, but one of which is they miss this great truth. Sin is inside of us. It's not outside of us. The problem is much bigger uh, than you realize, than you may realize. So don't be blind like them. We all are. The Bible says when we're saved, we go from a state of being blind to seen. It's a metaphor, but spiritually speaking, that's what happens. And I think right here, we're seeing a picture of ourselves and our blindness. And, And even if you're Christians today, you can probably, if you're honest with yourself and you're seriously introspective today, you can look, you can see a little bit of yourself even now as a believer and saying, that sounds a little bit like me. I'm a little bit, are you in any way external with your Christianity, at least primarily? Or, or only that? That's the big challenge here. Don't be blind like them. Don't just be religious. Don't focus on the external. Focus on the internal. Don't think you're a Christian because you live a good life and go to church every now and then and love others as best as you can and wash your hands in that manner. It is not what makes you a Christian. Again, a lot of Christians are over here and they might call themselves that, but they aren't. Just like These Pharisees in this day thought they were okay and they were religious. In the name of the biblical God, they ministered. But they were not in the kingdom of God. They were kept out. These were the precise types, being religious in the way that they think, being about themselves, being about hand-washing, about the external, about law-keeping, about being a pretty good person. That was their Christian, so to speak, biblical spirituality. And Christ is saying, it's not it. It's not it. You're not a Christian when you, when you do those things. You're a Christian when you come messy in the heart and ask Christ to clean you up. That's, that's all that makes a person a Christian is actually believing that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. He loves you. He died on a cross as a substitute in your place. If you believe in that and you come with a dirty heart saying, I, can, I come not seeking to save myself or to impress the God of the universe, but to be impressed by you because I am I believe, you, I believe you are who you are, the Bible's true, and that you actually walked in the earth and in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and did all these things and that it's sufficient, that you made a kingdom possible on this earth, that it's really real. I believe in all of that. And again, be introspective about this. Do you, do you want Jesus? Do you love him? Does he have your heart or just some external things now and then that look Christian-y? Be totally honest with yourself doesn't mean as a Christian that if that's kind of true for you, you've lost your salvation. It just means repent, turn, come back to God and actually give him your heart. Talk to him throughout the week. Come to him messy every single day and praise God, the Bible says, you have been washed. You've been sanctified, made holy. You've been made right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew one twenty one again says, I quoted this last week, uh, but I will again in light of Advent here. Uh, Matthew one twenty one says, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. The, the name meaning is huge in the Bible, FYI. It is here as well. The angel says to Joseph, Name him Jesus because Jesus means Savior. The Lord saves. God saves. You'll name him that for because he will save his people from their sins. From their inner filth, he will save them. 
So Jesus was not born into the world to tell you to wash your hands before eating. Praise God for that, right? Jesus was not born into the world just to say, oh, you got some dirty hands. It's really important you guys wash your hands. Or anything related to that. In other words, he did not come into the world to say, live better life. He just did not do it. He didn't come into the world to say, live a cleaner, have a cleaner lifestyle that, that, that makes God happy. And in that way, enter the kingdom of God. This doesn't say this. Rejoice, the angels say, because a Savior has been born. Not a moralist or a teacher or a hand washer. But he was born in the world to wash your soul of sin. That's the good news of Christmas. That's what began at the manger, but really has culminated at the cross. The manger, remember, means nothing without the cross. If you just have the manger, it's God coming into the world and just appearing among lost sinners, and we're all dead forever. But the reason he can be so gentle, he can demonstrate God's love and patience and grace, is that the cross is coming. Because of that, he was born in a manger. Because of that, he was born humbly. Because of that, and through that, he's demonstrating love and patience with you. He can walk among religious people who really in a lot of ways are offended and hate Christ here and still speak hard things but loving things to them because the cross is coming. He's walking among us right now in this room through his word. and This is is the message of the Bible for us every week and today. I love you. I've died for your sins. If you believe in me, I'll cleanse you of your inner filth. You will never be unclean ever again. You'll never be cast outside the camp. You'll never be banished from me ever You'll be close to me. I'll bring you into my kingdom and I'll fight your enemies for you and you will watch me and you will get glory in me and I'll wipe every tear from your eyes forever and ever and ever. And death will never reign, no more, nor will shame, nor will night. There'll be none of that anymore forever and ever and ever. This is what he's making possible. And it never says we do it. It only says he does it. It began, it began in the Old Testament, but it began at that manger as well. But make that beeline to the cross. Because we don't get clean at the manger, we get clean at the cross. That's where the blood of Christ is shed. That's where we have that ultimate cleansing. We pray for us. God, thank you for today, for your grace in our life. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you that the Bible shows us that same message over and over again. Even in obscure laws about being clean and unclean with fabrics and foods and animals and bodily discharges and sicknesses, all, all these things, even obscure things like that, can somehow expose the need, can expose the problem, it can expose the inner heart filth, and drive us to God for redemption. Uh, God, thank you for telling that great redemptive story over and over and over again in the Bible. It never gets old, and if it does for us, that's our, that's our sin problem. So God, I pray that you would make the old but true and faithful story of the gospel that the Bible does not know anything but, really, uh, would be fresh to us today and applicable and just good news to cling to uh, wherever people are because we're all spiritually filthy. God, people might be here today that do not know you at all yet. They're still outside the camp in their uncleanness. God, I pray, I pray especially now as I pray, you'd impress upon them that because of Christ, they are clean. The ritual of the cross has occurred They are deemed clean, and they can come into your presence now fully and forever, never to be unclean again. Amazing grace, amazing power, amazing mercy and love. Uh, God, help us now to respond and to give you tons of glory this Christmas season, just giving thanks that you come into the world, not just to walk around us and to teach us and to tell us to do a couple of things. You really came into the world to die on a cross for our sins. And for that, we give you eternal thanksgiving 
forever and ever and ever and ever. For this is what our God is like. Hallelujah. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.